Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Plastic Surgery Uncensored. I'm your host, Dr. Roddy Rabad, and boy, do we have an episode for you. It's such an amazing episode that we've actually decided to split it into two episodes because we have so much, so much to talk about. I'm going to be joined by, uh, with actually with Barry Eppley, world-renowned plastic surgeon, oral surgeon, and dear friend of mine who does some extraordinary surgeries, actually surgeries that I don't do. Um, these are procedures like rib removal and skull reshaping and shoulder reshaping and Adam's apple reductions, testicular enhancements, calf reductions, jaws, wraparound jaws, and more. It's going to be a fascinating two-part series. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I think that some of these topics are going to really blow your mind away. So let's go ahead and get started with our first episode with Barry on rib removal and shoulder reshaping. Welcome to the show, Barry. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here on a Sunday. Yes, of course. And I was asking you what the weather's like. You said gray. gray. What shade of gray? Is it light gray or dark gray? Today is dark gray. This is Midwest, so it's dark gray. All right, dark. Well, if it's any consolation, we have light gray here in LA. I know. I see that. Well, it looks better than where I am. Okay. Well, we'll do that. So, Barry, let's just dive in for a second because, you know, I'm a real sort of watchdog, if you will, sort of a David Horowitz meets Geraldo kind of guy in terms of trying to get people to stay away from catastrophic things. And if someone called me up and they're like, yeah, I'm going to go to this guy and like have a rib removed, I'd be like, are you crazy? But here I am, I have you on the show because I know you, I've known you for many years, we obviously became uh, friends through the facial, uh, con uh, facial implant course that we do together. And I think it's really important for you to understand that you have extensive training. So why don't you tell us about your training and sort of how you began this journey and what it takes to do sort of the things that you do? Well, I think every, every, everybody in life and certainly every plastic surgeon is a product of their pathway. That's usually the way it is. So for me, I had a long pathway. I went to dental school. I trained in oral and maxillofacial surgery, got my medical degree. I trained in plastic surgery. I did a three-year craniofacial fellowship. I did ENT. And then I spent all of that 15 years at the university in the children's hospital doing cleft craniofacial surgery, microsurgical reconstruction, and then left to go into private practice. So you take all of that background and then you apply it to aesthetic surgery. And for me, although I do have done lots of sort of what I'm going to call standard or you know, plastic surgery procedures. I've sort of evolved by my background to do a lot of different things. But as I often say about plastic aesthetic surgery in general, every aesthetic procedure has its origins in reconstructive surgery. It's For just sure. been applied in a more cosmetic way. And so it's no different than anything that we're going to talk about today. It doesn't come from 
just winging it and, and making it up one day. It comes from doing a lot of other things in the reconstructing world and just applying that to aesthetic surgery. So I, I want everyone to listen carefully. You are a full-fledged dentist. You're a full-fledged oral surgeon. You're a full-fledged plastic surgeon. You're a full-fledged craniofacial surgeon. And if I'm not mistaken, you said you did ENT. Are you talking well, about- I did two years of head and neck surgery, not not the otolaryngology felt. Right, right. Or the otolaryngology residency. So dare I say you're well-trained. That is an extraordinary, extraordinary resume. And as such, when we're together and you discuss the procedures that you do, it is clear to me that you have a command of the anatomy, you have a command of the operative field and what you're doing. So, you know, that's why I was so excited to have you on here because I'm usually telling people to run away from some of the things we'll be talking about, not so much necessarily because the surgeries aren't good, but that because most people doing them don't know what the F they're doing. So it takes someone with this vast amount of training which I have one quarter of in order to be able to do the procedures you do. So that's amazing. Um, and like you said, you got into this because you had the skill sets for it, right? It, it, it evolved because you had, and the thing is, if people came to me, for example, today, and they do all the time and ask for things that I don't feel comfortable doing, my practice doesn't evolve into that. It's just the chicken or the egg. I sort of don't get into it. But since you have the skill set and then, I'm sure people started asking you for things. You're like, yeah, I, I can do that. Sure, I can do that. And then, you know, after a while, I, this is what you're doing, right? Well, I, th I think you hit upon a very important point. It's people sometimes, you know, look at some of the things I do. And if they're not that knowledgeable about my background, which I don't know why they would, they think you're aggressive. They think you're cavalier. Well, the reality is you're cavalier if you don't have the requisite background to be doing it. Precisely. Yeah, That's exactly, exactly, exactly what we preach every week here on the show. Everything has to do with who, where, when, what, and how. So now that we know you are well-trained, you are an expert, let's kind of dive in. I kind of asked you to give me a list of the items that you do that we would refer to out of the box or non-standard. You gave me this list. I'm going to list it out here so the people listening can be excited and, if you will, start to salivate about some of these subjects. Um, I'm going to start with the one that I think most people are always so curious about, which is waistline reduction. That's right. Making your waist small, like Jessica Rabbit style. Um, that is actually rib reduction. We'll get into that. Next one I thought was super interesting is shoulder reshapening. What the hell does that mean? That means that we're changing the shape of your, the breadth of your shoulder, whether we make you wider and or narrower by manipulating the clavicle. And you also mentioned a lot of skull reshapening. And of course, when we dive in, we'll elaborate. I have a few other things like total jaws and testicular enhancements and calf reductions and things like that, that we'll get you if we get time. So let's dive in. This is something that I know people ask all the time, right? It couldn't, I, I imagine this procedure in your practice has exploded. And the reason why I imagine it is everyone's always liked the idea of being kind of curvy. It's always been an attractive feminine shape, but no more so than now than ever before in the history of aesthetics, you know, to be curvy. And so that's what 
drove the BBL phenomenon. So one way to be curvy is just leave your ribs alone and just keep adding volume to your waist and that will create a curve or a distinction. You're going at it from the top, which is going through the ribs. So tell me what this procedure entails and let me know about if you, has it been more popular now or is it just steady or what? Well, rib removal is an interesting procedure because there's actually a mythical history to it. You know, it goes back decades. I don't know if people did it decades ago, but you know, in my experience, it's kind of interesting. Yes, you remove ribs, you reduce your waistline. But what's really interesting about it is the patients that seek it out. And they are different than what you think. You know, the two primary patients who seek out rib removal are transgender, male to female, and cis females who already have a very narrow waistline. And both of those patients really are after the same thing. They're straight. Their body profile is straight. And they're just trying to get something that has more of a curve. You do get, and maybe the other third of the patients is patients who are probably more what you were talking about. You know, people that are really trying to get an ultra hourglass, you know, type figure. But that actually doesn't make up uh, the vast majority of the people. And almost all of these people have been through the conventional approaches to try to do it, uh, whether that's liposuction, tummy tucks. So as I often, you know, say rib removal is kind of the last stop on the train of waist narrowing. It's that's interesting. Final... You should, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting to say that. And that's very, makes a lot of sense. So the majority, let's say for the time being two thirds of the patients seeking rib removal are individuals that are relatively square by their anatomy and are trying to become somewhat curvy as opposed to someone who's curvy, who's trying to become ultra curvy. Correct. Which, which is, which is, which makes sense in that it's good to hear because obviously those patients that are trying to get ultra, all, anytime you're getting ultra anything, it gets out of, a little out of whack and out of balance. So the question is, what are you removing? Which ribs and how do you remove it? Okay. Yeah. The interesting question is, uh, which ribs influence the waistline? Well, they are the free floating ribs. And it's very interesting because what I've learned is if you look at a lot of anatomy, textbooks and drawing and so forth, you'll see these 11 and 12 rib and they look like they go out at about 45 degrees. But the reality is they don't. They go down almost at 75 to 85 degrees. They're steeply angled downward, shockingly so, much different than you see in the textbook. And they do come down to around the level of the belly button. Some people comes down right almost to the iliac crest. So it is true that if you remove part of them, and when we talk about rib removal, we don't mean taking the whole rib back to the spine or the vertebral facets. That won't help you. You really just need to remove the outer third or half. And so, so the outer third and half, just so I can elaborate. First of all, so people who know nothing about anatomy, well, I mean, obviously they've seen it in textbooks or in mummies and what skeletons, et cetera. So you have the attached portion that attaches to your sternum that kind of keeps, keeps the rigidity and that there's a bunch of them that kind of come underneath and sort of into your abdomen from your chest. And they, they create a rib cage, if you will, within your abdomen. And the length of that relative to your pelvis determines how much space there is from your 
chest to your abdomen if you're long torsoed or short torsoed. And so the third that you're removing is from the front to somewhere in the mid third, not all the way around, as you said, to the back. Correct. Yeah. So okay. there's generally rib removal at least means removing the outer halves of 11 and 12, sometimes 10. You have to be a little careful at 10 because the pleura of the lung very often is on the back side of 10. Uh, and we generally like to stay away from that, although I've seen it plenty of times. But what I've observed in rib removal is I do more than that because rib removal alone is helpful. But what I learned right from the very beginning was the width of the latissimus dorsi muscle. The biggest muscle on your body by surface area that runs from your shoulder blades way down to your hips goes way wide and it is tremendously thick even down as it approaches the iliac crest so you have to go through that muscle anyway to get to 11 and 12 so what i do is carve out a big wedge of the latissimus dorsi muscle and the combination of the muscle wedge and the rib removal allows it to move into the most that it can possibly move in. And how do you remove it? Through tiny incisions? What, tell me the approach. Are they, are they, are they supine, meaning on their back, or are they prone on their face? The surgery is done in the prone position. Uh, we generally are using about a four centimeter incision, a little bit more to the side. If you kind of, when people turn their backs, you'll see there's this natural kind of crease that takes place, and that's kind of where you put it in, centered over the end of rib number 11. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a fairly small incision given what you actually have to do inside of it. Gotcha. So what's a recovery from such a thing? I mean, people think, oh, you now remove some ribs. Are you more vulnerable to some trauma back there because the ribs were obviously protecting your organs? What, what's the, well, tell me about the recovery and what people generally expect. Sure. Well, interestingly enough, uh, rib removal, that surgery as I do it, it is easier to recover from and has less complications than a tummy tuck. I believe and, that. And simple. Uh, and it's not because tummy tuck is some easy surgery. It's just because it's common, people don't give it much attention. But if you look at a tummy tuck, as you know, it's a big surface area involvement and, you know, you need drains and you're doing lipo with it, but rib removal is fairly discreet. And because you're taking something out, it is not like rib fractures. Rib fractures are very painful because you're trying to get those bones to heal and you have those two ends rubbing together. But when you're taking the bone out, it is just a muscular recovery. So people within two to three weeks, you know, will be you know, pretty much back to doing normal things. And within six weeks, they'll, they'll be back to almost any activity they want to do. And I know that because I've certainly done people who are dancers, gymnasts, and none of those have had any problems, uh, okay. you know, with. So it's, but it's just one of those procedures that because the name of it, it just sounds bad. You yeah, say, I mean, uh, well, yeah. And, and, you know, you know what the thing about it, Barry, that's interesting is like, when people come to me for rhinoplasties, as you know, is, I don't know, almost a half of my practice. The f it's odd. I always find the questions they ask so fascinating because they're consistent of the sort of misunderstanding or misinformation. The question is, blah, blah, blah. Are you going to break my nose? Um, 
yeah, I do osteotomies and everybody. Oh my. And I said, you're not going to feel it. It's not <laughs> breaking your nose, removing a rib. They just sound, oh, so painful. Yet, as you said, you know, forget about that. Liposuction is brutal. I don't know one patient who is in an excruciating pain after liposuction, yet, you know, a rhinoplasty has essentially no pain, and I would suspect a rib re uh, removal done correctly is also relatively painless. So that makes makes well, sense. It's painless, but if you want to put it in perspective, you know, use, use an analogy that people know better because it's common. If people have BBL surgery, there probably isn't any procedure that I do that I would say is as bad as what BBL surgery does to somebody. Between 360-degree lipo uh, all over their body, and it's a very uncomfortable procedure because it's just about the surface area of the trauma. It's huge. But nobody looks at that and go, oh, that's a terrible recovery. Or more relevant, as you know, nobody looks at BBL surgery and go, well, that's a dangerous procedure. Right. Uh, well, there you have it. There you have it. That's right. Everything you ever thought you knew and more about rib removal. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and we're going to dive in deep again regarding shoulder reshaping. That's right. Expanding and narrowing the shoulders. Hey, if you're wondering what that means, so did I. You want to check out the second half after this break. So, Barry, I, so we got the whole waistline reduction thing, I find that that kind of people already know about. But what I find that people know nothing about is this shoulder reshapening surgery that you do. Um, I won't lie to you. Up until I saw some of your photos, I'm like, what the hell is Barry doing? Um, what is shoulder reshaping? Why are you doing it? Why would you? I mean, I know, like, for example, models like broad shoulders, and we like to avoid short, tiny shoulders. But I don't, I don't even understand why someone would want to do it, and I'm not really sure how you do it. So tell me a little bit more about shoulder reshaping again. Yeah, shoulder reshaping, and I don't know who invented it, quite honestly. I just came up with the idea and did it on my own. Somebody may have done it before me. I just don't know. But it comes from, initially, the demand comes from transgender surgery. Okay. That is the demand for it in the male-to-female patient. And what you observe or learn in them is when it comes to their body, everybody knows facial feminization. That's obviously a, a very common procedure almost today. But when it comes to their body, one of their primary concerns for many of these patients is the width of their shoulders or how square their shoulders are. It is a huge area of shoulder dysphoria and perhaps surprising to many, it's often more important to them than getting breast implants in the context of feminizing their body. It is a big issue to have these broader, more square shoulders. Okay. So that's the origin of it. So helping these patients have more narrow shoulders or by taking the clavicles, you know, the clavicle bone anatomically, its main function is to keep your shoulder off of your sternum. That's the role that it actually plays so it doesn't collapse on there. And so taking out a segment of that bone will allow the entire shoulder girdle to move inward. Is it, is it that the shoulders are moving inwards or are they rotating it? Well, 
Yeah, it's a very good insight because the clavicle is not a horizontal bone. It's a lazy S-shaped bone. And so as you reduce a segment of it, most of it's width, but there is a bit of anterior rotation. And what that ultimately creates is a softening effect on the shoulders. You can take square shoulders and they just, they're more narrow, but they look a little bit more rounded and softened. So that's why I like the term reductive shoulder reshaping because it's more than just narrowing. It does change the shape of that. Got it. And then you approach the clavicle through the clavicle, like right on where it is. Where do you make the incision? Right over the clavicle? Well, as I said earlier, like every aesthetic procedure, you know, being able to fix the clavicle fracture has been around for, you know, who, as long as plates and screws have been around. But sure. if you look at the way orthopedic surgeons and that I'm not denigrating the way they do it. They put a big incision right on the front part of the clavicle and they throw in a big plate. That isn't going to work aesthetically. So the best place to put it both from an incision standpoint and the thickness of the bone is in the inner third. So it's not in the front of the clavicle. It actually goes in this little concave area above yeah. the clavicle behind it, otherwise known as the supraclavicular fossa. Right, in the sulcus there. So it's hidden right. in the, the valley of it. So when you reduce it, you go in there, you open up, you get to the bone, you saw two sections of it off, you bring it together and you plate and screw it together and stabilize it. Is that how you do it? Correct. It, you know, conceptually, it's very straightforward. Correct. Right? That's exactly what it is. Take out a piece of the bone, put it together, your shoulders get narrow. So as an operation, it's conceptually uh, very, uh, you know, it's a linear operation. What makes the operation unique, at least in our world of plastic surgery, is the recovery. Okay. Before we go on to the recovery, how do you know how much to take? Is it like, is there a limit? I'm sure there's a limit, right? Because you can't take out a three and a half centimeter, uh, 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 a five centimeter section of the clavicle. It will cause physiologic alteration. So what is the limits of what you can uh, remove? Yeah, that's a good question because every, every patient's first question is, how much are you going to take? And of course, every like lipo, everybody wants you to take as much as of course as as humanly possible to do. As a general rule, we're doing anywhere from two and a half to three centimeters. There's there's some technical reasons why it's hard to go beyond that. But more relevantly, because this is the second most common question people have about the procedure is: Is this going to affect the way my arm functions? Yeah, my functionality range, range of motion. And the reality is. Borrowing from the orthopedic literature and the clavicle fracture repair literature, which is well known, as long as you're removing 30% or less of the total clavicle length, it has no impact on arm range of motion. Okay. So then you shifted to the right question, which is recovery. But before we get into recovery, I want to throw in a segment of expansion, right? Because oddly enough, I'm not in the transgender world. So I don't know that, but it does make sense. But then you have individuals who just have very narrow shoulders and it's very aesthetically non-desirable. The idea of expanding your shoulders as is sort of almost required for any model is interesting. And what do you do as a spacer? How do you, how do you expand and what do you use in between the space? Yeah. Shoulder lengthening or widening is a very different animal, as you already have alluded to, because it is men. It is men, at least in my experience, always men. Uh, some of them do have very narrow shoulders. 
most of them do, and that's kind of why they uh, seek it. Uh, it is a different surgery because your clavicle is designed to hold your shoulder out. So when you take out a segment of the bone on the operative table, the first thing you'll observe is these two segments pass and collapse on, on, right. on each other. It's, it's, it's without force. You don't need to push them in the direction you want them to go. They go perfectly. You are ready. As usual, you're, in, you're insightful about what I'm about to say, which is it's a different animal when you want to push it out because now you're pushing against the whole shoulder girdle tissues. But the point is, what I've d developed to do is, yes, it's true. You could cut that bone. You could take a block of bone from somewhere else and put it in as a spacer. You, you could do that. You could take a piece of the fibula from your leg or put it in there. But that's not the thing to do because uh, it would take forever to heal. I do. I borrowed from my other experiences, you know, in jaw orthognathic surgery, the sagittal, famous sagittal split ramus osteotomy. Right. So I just simply took that and applied it to the clavicle so we can cut it and allow it to slide out on itself. So in the very middle, you still have bone contact. And then you can plate it, and then you can put some synthetic bone chips in the defect. So it's a sagittal split lengthening without having to harvest bone from the patient. M makes perfect sense. So the question then is, of course, how much can you expand? Is it the similar nature in that you can go about three centimeters, or is it less yeah. because you have a huge force pushing against you? Yeah, well, it's both. There's a technical issue of... As you make that split, all of right. a sudden, it's a whole different thing when the clavicle's longer and there you can't put any plate and screws over the split section. Right. It's only the duplicated yeah. portion that can hold screws or anything. Yeah. So it's, you know, the bottom line is we'd like to get 25 millimeters, a centimeter, but realistically, I've never been able to go beyond 18 to 20, somewhere between 15 and 20 per section. Right. And that ends up being translating to something visible. Patients are like, oh, wow, this looks better. Well, what I notice, and that's why probably the lengthening has taught me to call this type of surgery shaping, because when you look at somebody who's had it, the first thing you'll notice is the converse of reduction. Their shoulders just look more square. Why? Because as they get a little bit wider, they go back. Right. I like that. That makes sense. They just visit. They almost, it's almost like posturing. You know, you know, a person, a person can probably gain or lose what you give them based on slouching versus standing erect. It would be essentially the same. Correct. You got now, it. you, you, you led to the question at hand, which is when we talked about rib removal or waistline reduction, you said it's actually quite uncanny how reasonably easy the recovery is because it was something that perhaps is just floating and not doing any, it's not holding any force and it's not involved in any real functionality but it sounds like the clavicular surgeries are a little bit more involved because there's plates and screws and a lot of movement is that right well it's not so much about pain most of the discomfort in shoulder surgery comes from the fact that you have to elevate a little bit of the pectoralis major muscle on the inner aspect so it's more muscle pain than bone pain but you do have to put people on some restrictive arm range of motion and it's not like a clavicle fracture where you have one good wing and one bad wing. Now you've right. got a patient who really 
at least for the first couple of weeks, I just tell them we just keep your elbows by your side as much as as you can. So we do have to think a lot more about and to help them, you know, prepare. Okay, what are you going to do, you know, right after surgery? What are you going to do in the time you're here? How are you going to get home? You know, the, all of those sort of things because there are motion is going to be more re restricted. Right. So, uh, so that's, that's important. So when we talk about procedures and people are flying around the world and they're having complications, people only, almost always think about just the surgery and some operations, this being one of them, the recovery is as difficult, more complicated, more risky than the surgery itself. Correct. And here you have a surgery that is not that complicated. You make a sagittal slit, you slide the clavicle over on itself, you put some plates and screws, you call it a day. But if that patient postoperatively doesn't have someone near them, they reach up to the top cabinet and snap. They break their clavicle, and now you're in a whole bunch of hurt. This you you you've communicated this fracture, blah blah blah, and it becomes a huge nightmare. So again, it's very important as people are listening that you know you got to know the aftercare. That's why I'm such a stickler about when people get up and go to these random ass countries to have procedures done by very well-trained surgeons, it's because of the aftercare that isn't being followed because you're now in another country flying and traveling in suitcases and layovers and shit like that. All right, well, that wraps up the first half of our two-part series with Barry Eppley. I hope you found that as fascinating as I did. Um, we're going to dive in next week, and we're going to be talking about even more fascinating stuff. Skull reshapening, Adam's apple reductions, calf reductions, testicular enhancements, wraparound jaws. I mean, it's truly an incredible menagerie of uh, procedures. Until next week, remember, download, subscribe, and share our podcast with the people you love. We truly, truly appreciate it. Signing off, Dr. Roddy Ravon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.